Great. Well, it's, uh, it's very exciting uh, starting a new series. It's also really sad that, um, yeah, that we've kind of left Jonah behind. We only had him for four weeks and he's gone. Um, if you missed any of those, do listen again on the website. They're all there. Uh, it's a great series to listen to. The other thing that I would like to um, recommend to you today is it would be a really good idea if those of you who are here spent a bit of time with Ben and Jai and Ian because next week they're doing a marathon on Sunday morning and, you know, they may not return. Um, now, apparently, uh, if they do it in a, in a reasonable time, they may get back for church, but if not, then they'll finish about the same time we start. So we may not see them next week. And that's not to say that they've definitely had a heart attack on the marathon. They just may have been a bit late. Um, so just make sure you say hello to them before you leave. But it's very exciting that they're running such a long way between them. So like I say, we're starting a new series uh, leading up to Easter. We're taking four weeks, um, including today and including Easter Sunday, to look right through the Easter story with uh, the big theme of hope. So we're going to look, uh, we're going to begin in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a very small person just mouthing at you there. Uh, we're going to begin in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus' betrayal by Judas. Then we'll go to his farcical trial at the hands of the Romans and the Jews, his crucifixion and death and um, between the two thieves. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll look at Jesus coming back to life. Um, so it's, you know, hopefully it'll be a really helpful and really exciting series to look at. Uh, the first three of the, the talks are going to be entitled Hope in the Face of Something. So as you can see, today is Hope in the Face of Betrayal. And the last one, on Easter Sunday, it's going to be a cafe church, so bring your friends. Um, it's going to have a slightly different title, but still be about hope. Uh, we had a chat about it, thinking all these negative things, hope in the face of, and something negative. And we'd originally thought, you know, Cafe Church, hope in the face of Jesus. But if the other three had been negative, we didn't want people to take away a kind of negative connotation about Jesus' face. So it'll be something else, but it'll be about hope and about Jesus. So hopefully that'll make uh, a lot of sense when we get there. And it probably will, because Ian's speaking on that, not me. So we're really hoping that we'll get a really good, clear picture of what's happening the last few hours of Jesus' life before he went to the cross, and then afterwards too. Um, even though it's kind of awful story of betrayal by a dear friend, injustice at the hands of those who had been set in place to protect the powerless, anguish in the kind of finality of death. Hopefully in the midst of this, this painful and cruel story, we can find the hope that is there. And that's what we really want you to see as we do it. So shall we pray? And then we'll carry on. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that it's just an amazing um, book that you've given us. It tells us your story that begins before the world was made and it ends after the new world is made. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the, the man who is God, who the book is all about. Father, help us to see some of that today. Help us to see how yeah, Jesus is the centre of everything that you are doing. Father, we thank you for him and we pray that um, that we will see him glorified today. Father, help us to, to worship Jesus as we listen to your word and as we continue to worship you here today. Father, we thank you for him and pray that by your spirit you would uh, work amongst us and change our hearts because of him. Amen. Okay, well our series, like I said, it's about hope. Um, so I thought that would be a good place to begin. And it's key to this series, but it's important to kind of know what, it is, what is it and why is it important. According to the dictionary, 
It's always an excellent place to start. And by the dictionary, I mean the dictionary that most people use, which is you type it into Google and see the definition that it gives as a top hit. It says a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. So that's what the kind of Google dictionary says that it is. And we hope for many things, don't we? We hope kind of from the enormous to the completely mundane and sometimes even ridiculous. There are some people who hope that their football team will win constantly. There are some people who really hope that their football team just might not lose one day. Um, There are some people who hope that they will one day meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Which I thought thought about that a little bit briefly. I got sidetracked in my thinking, but I'll share my thoughts with you. They hope to meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Two things. One, you could look in the phone book under Wright and ring them. But if you meet, if you're a man looking for Mrs. Wright, she's already married. She's Mrs. Wright. So that's just not a great place to start. She'd have to get divorced and then married. So it would be a nightmare. Anyway, other things people hope for. Hope for good health, uh, a nice house, a job, friends, children, money, all sorts of different things that people hope for. But why do people hope for some things and, and why is it important to them? So, what do you think? Why... This is not rhetorical. Why do people hope for things? And why is it important to them? Kind of, why do we hope? Why are we creatures of hope? Any ideas? Because people are never happy. Could be. Yeah, they always want something more. There's that dissatisfaction there. Any other ideas? Why might people hope? Yeah. Yeah, so they think something will make them happy. It turns out it doesn't, so they hope for something bigger and better, and and if they get it, they'll find out that most of the time it doesn't. Yeah? Any other ideas? No? We'll carry on. That's fine. There may be another question for you later, so do be ready. Uh, But, uh, you know, we we all hope for different things, don't we? So this week, when you're either sat at home somewhere, sat somewhere else, or stood up at work, or whatever you're doing... And you're thinking, oh, I hope that. Just think to yourself, actually, why is it that I'm hoping for something? Because we all hope for things for different reasons. And, and we all kind of, and it's important to us that we can hope. So I think that we hope for things really because of our life. We want our lives and our world and our families and our situations to be a bit better. You know, we, we kind of hope for a better tomorrow. And the reason that we're, we're hoping today for a better tomorrow is that there's loads of stuff that's wrong today. There's things that are uncomfortable, there's things that's painful, or unjust, or inconvenient. All those things happen today, and we hope for a better tomorrow, because we don't like all those things. Okay, that was the first word, hope. The second one of of the topic today is betrayal. So betrayal is just a kind of awful thing, isn't it? Um, Some of you here may have experienced betrayal firsthand, and that's... Yeah, that's a really sad thing. Maybe some people have experienced betrayal in a marriage and that's broken down. Or maybe, I know friends of mine that have lived through the suffering of their parents' marriage breaking up because of betrayal there. And maybe that's happened to you as well. Um, Perhaps you've found yourself in trouble because somebody has betrayed you or somebody has betrayed your confidence and you are upset by that. So some of these things happen to us. We kind of all have some experience of it, don't we? But betrayal is a terrible thing for us to experience because what's happening, I think, in betrayal 
is that someone you trust and that you trust to the point of being vulnerable with them, kind of sharing something that you wouldn't want everyone to know, the person uses that trust and that intimacy and they turn it against you for their own ends. And I think the pain can be increased, particularly if it's a loved one, a husband or a wife, or close friends, or maybe kind of trusted work partners. When it's someone close, the pain's multiplied. And if that happens to you, we kind of go through feelings just as normal human beings of, how could I have been so stupid as to share that with them? Or, I'm never going to trust anybody again because people just let you down. Or, if I get the chance, I will get my revenge on that person. And I think if we act on those kind of feelings, they're not ones that will ever build us up or build other people up, but they'll lead us to kind of darkness and destruction or bitterness and, and cold-heartedness. Sometimes you can meet people who have got that kind of bitterness within them and you just think, something has happened in your life that has led you to this place. And maybe it, for some people it could be betrayal. It could be all sorts of other things as well. But we read in the passage, Denise read it to us, and we heard of the betrayal uh, by Judas of Jesus. But I think, as we read through it, there is hope in this passage. So, let's have a a quick read through it again, get it fresh in our minds as we go through the chapter. So, if you've got Luke 22 open, uh, please follow along. So, from verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray uh, that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw behind them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing... Take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to his disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and they took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down uh, together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else, said, uh, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. Ma'am, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. 
And he went outside and wept bitterly. I think it is an amazing story. It's filled with just real honesty, isn't it? It's filled with human beings acting the way that human beings do. So let's just clarify that it's Jesus here who is betrayed by the others. Jesus is the one who's spent, uh, who's had this intimate group of 12 friends. He spent three years with them. He called them to follow them, to follow him from all sorts of, of different backgrounds. And as we read through the Bible, we get the picture that none of them, not one of the 12, were the brightest pennies in the box. It could have been you or it could have been me if we'd been there. They were looked after by Jesus, they were taught by Jesus, trained by Jesus, and they were even empowered by him at points to go and do some of the things that Jesus had been doing. They'd seen him heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. What uh, kind of hands-on education they had. And then Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he sends them out to do the same. They travelled together, they listened to Jesus teach all over the country, they lived together, they ate together, they worked together, Nothing of Jesus was held back from them. He shared his whole life with these 12 young men. He had showed them his true self and he had showed them God by his life and his work. At this point in his life, though, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that he was heading to his death. He had told his disciples this, but they they hadn't really understood it at all. Jesus knew that's what was about to happen when they entered the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, So this was normal for Jesus. It says in verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. So it was just a normal place that he went with his disciples. They they knew that well because they knew him well. He went to the garden to pray and Jesus, in this hour of great trial and desperation, knowing in a a few hours that he's going to go and die on a cruel Roman cross, he goes there to pray. I mean, there's a great model for us just as Christians there, isn't there? If we're going to face something that's really difficult, the best preparation that we can have is prayer. Remind yourself that that you aren't the centre of the universe and that God the Father is. He has a plan and he's all-powerful. He's the sovereign. And that basically means that he's got a plan and he is all-powerful. You know, even things that look truly insurmountable, God is always bigger than whatever our problems might be, our enemies and our fears. So they go in. Jesus says to his disciples, in verse 40, wherever that's gone, he says, I'm reaching the place. He said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. So Jesus tells his disciples to pray as well as he's praying. Then he goes from being with them about a stone's throw away, and we really try, when we're here and when we're reading the Bible, to understand you know, what's really going on. So I've brought a stone Okay, so Jesus withdrew that far. Um, he was a stone's throw away, and he, he prayed. Jesus pours his heart out to God. He says, God, you know what's going to happen, and so do I, and I'm absolutely terrified about it, and I know it's going to hurt. Is there possibly another way that we can do this? He says, if there is, please let's go another way. But if there isn't another way, I am totally in your hands for whatever you want me to do. Jesus is just a great example of somebody who lives for God. 
My prayers are so, so rarely like that. Maybe I need to work harder on my prayers. We can see that from Luke's account here, Jesus was really anxious to the point of sweating what looked like great drops of blood. This wasn't kind of half-hearted for Jesus, but it was a soul-wrenching moment in his life. And it's uh, such a hard time for Jesus that God the Father ministers to him by the hand of the angels. They come and they strengthen him and they help him. He experiences God's divine love and caring presence with him in his darkest moments before he goes to the cross. Then Jesus gets up from his soul-searching prayer. You can just kind of imagine what he's feeling at this point. He's terrified and he's just thinking, God knows what he's doing and he has a plan and I am part of it, but it's something I know is going to hurt. And he also thinks, I've poured my soul out to God. I know it's going to be difficult a difficult thing for me to go through. But I just know that my disciples are there preparing themselves for this ordeal as well. So Jesus gets up from praying and he looks round and he finds his disciples preparing themselves by sleeping. They're not doing what he asked them to do. He asked them to pray and they're sleeping. You can just imagine him thinking in his head, you know, what a bunch of wasters, lazy. Jesus asked them to pray and they were sleeping. And I kind of jokingly say that they were wasters, but I don't know how many times I've fallen asleep praying. And, or even mid-prayer. Even mid-prayer out loud, I've fallen asleep praying. Um, Hannah can tell you that sometimes apparently I tail off into meaningless mumbling and then snore. So it's, you know, I know what it's like to be kind of one of Jesus' disciples in that sense of being a little bit useless. Um, But can you imagine Jesus' heart at that point? Here he's terrified about the next few hours of his life, what they hold for him, and his closest friends aren't helping him and supporting him, but they're sleeping. I think he'd probably feel a little bit let down, a bit hurt, not appreciated, maybe even feel quite alone. So Jesus really does know what it's like to live a human life and feel the things that you and I feel day to day. He is our God who understands what it is to be human because he's God in human flesh and blood. And as you go through this account, we get onto the next bit in, uh, in the garden, which I, I I don't know. I don't know if I can like this bit of the story, but I, I do quite like it. Uh, what happens next? It's not the first bit, I'll just clarify that. The first bit is the greatest act of betrayal you know, that we really ever see. Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, is leading a mob of religious leaders. They are vicious people uh, with their servants. They have clubs and torches and swords and they come into the garden where Jesus and his disciples are. And here is what I was saying earlier. This is the greatest betrayal that we see. Someone uses the intimate knowledge of someone. Judas uses his intimate knowledge of Jesus, knowing where he goes to pray. And he shared that with people who are going to use it against him. So Judas knew this, and he used this private piece of information to trap Jesus. Uh, Matthew's Gospel tells us that it, you know, it cost the religious leaders 30 pieces of silver to get Judas to, to spill the information. We don't know exactly what the coins were, but apparently it was about four months' wages that he was paid. The three-year friendship that Judas has had, the provision, the teaching, all the leading, the loving, the caring, the sharing, the laughing together, crying together, 
all comes down to four months' wages. And it's made all the worse by being betrayed by a friend who knew where Jesus would be because Jesus had been vulnerable with him. He'd shared with him the special place that he liked, place that he liked to pray. And just to kind of uh, add insult to injury at this point, the way Judas was going to betray Jesus was with the sign of closest friendship. Jesus, Judas was going to go to Jesus and kiss him. A kind of common sign of friendship. We don't really do that so much um, British men because we're very kind of non-contacting, you're right, kind of people. And if the response to you're right isn't not bad, nothing to complain about or fine, then we don't really know what to go on from from there. But in, for Jesus, in the first century, it was a common greeting for a friend was to kiss them. As Jesus questions Judas about betraying him with the sign of friendship, Peter overhears and responds with great enthusiasm. But as well as great enthusiasm that Peter has, stirring up within him, he has yet to engage his brain. One of the disciples says to Jesus, shall we strike with swords? Peter thinks, stuff that, shoot first, ask questions later, and he chops off the ear of the high priest's servant. Uh, in one of the other Gospels, we, we find out his name. He's called Malchus. You couldn't imagine, in, like, in the first century, reading this book and, and then finding this guy in the temple somewhere, a bit older, with a dodgy ear, and going up to him and saying, was it you who was there? It would be amazing, wouldn't it? Peter grabs his sword and he swings it with the accuracy of either a surgeon or a blind fish. He misses killing him and he just takes off his ear. Jesus' response is no more of this. Just stop it. Imagine his emotions. Jesus is betrayed by his friend with a kiss and then Peter, his right-hand man, gets the wrong end of the stick again and cuts someone's ear off. It would make an excellent kind of episode in a soap, wouldn't it, that everyone getting the wrong end of the stick. Jesus knows what it's like to feel that little bit useless. And I kind of mean that reverently, because he's had three years with these people, and he's betrayed by one of them, and another one is as volatile as ever. He must be thinking, what have I managed to achieve? But what Jesus does is something amazing. In the middle of the confusion and the blood and betrayal, he bends down, and he picks up the severed ear of the servant, and simply with a touch he heals it back on the servant's head. He's the kind of least important guy in all of what's going on. He's just a servant to one of the priests. And he's the servant to one of the guys who's one of Jesus' enemies at this point. But Jesus, in his love and compassion, bends down, he picks up his ear, and he heals him, even though he's stood on the enemy's side. You can just kind of imagine the shocked silence that would descend at that point for everyone who's there. Jesus has shouted. Peter's probably put his sword away. Jesus puts the guy's ear back on. Hush descends, apart from a crying child in the background. Everyone is going to listen to what Jesus says then. And it's into that kind of shock that Jesus speaks. He says, you had your chance to do this by the book. Jesus says to them, but you knew it would never work. So you've come now under the cover of darkness. You've showed your true colours, your true allegiance. Jesus' words say, but this is your hour the hour when darkness reigns. To the priests of God, these are the people who should have been the agents of light 
to a dark world. People who should have lived exemplary lives worshipping God. These are the guys who should have realised who Jesus was and who he is. They don't. They go out in the middle of the night and they arrest him. They show that they have become agents of darkness instead of light. They are, whether they know it or not, working for Satan. Under the cover of darkness, they arrest the one who is the light of the world. The hour when darkness reigns is when Satan thinks he's won. Jesus, God's chosen king, is arrested. He'll be sentenced to death, and Satan thinks he's won. Well, Satan didn't know the end of the story, but we do. However, we're not there yet. What happens next is they drag, they drag Jesus away to the high priest's house and they sit in the courtyard, they light a fire and they sit around it for light and warmth. They, they just sit and they talk. Peter's kind of followed at a bit of a distance. We don't know where the other ten are. We know Judas has betrayed him. Peter's followed him. We don't know where uh, the others are. Peter is probably feeling like a proper muppet. He's had the sword fiasco and he just thinks, I've let my best friend down. Or maybe he's thinking, there's only a few of them. If I get my sword out again here, I might be able to take them all on and save him. Fortunately, he doesn't do that either. He sits down and he listens to what is being discussed. So if you just hold that thought, Peter sat in the courtyard listening to what's being discussed. If you look back to verse 31, uh, which is before what we, we read today, Jesus says to Peter, calling him Simon, um, is that the right verse I'm thinking of? Yep, that'll do. Uh, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have, prepared, uh, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three, ta- uh, you will deny three times that you know me. So before any of this has happened, even before they've gone into the garden to pray, Jesus says, Peter, before the cockroaches, you will have denied me three times. So back around the fire in the courtyard, Jesus has been arrested and taken by the mob. Um, Peter is sat there. And then in verse 56, the young girl says to him, you know him, don't you? And Peter's like, no way. Uh, I don't know him, definitely not. Uh, to a servant girl. And this kind of exposes Peter's terror, really, at what it would mean for him. A girl's testimony wasn't, or a woman's testimony, wouldn't be kind of admissible evidence back then, let alone a servant girl. She could have said anything and no one would have paid any attention to her whatsoever. Then someone else says to him in verse 58, um, where's that gone? You are also one of them. And he replies, no, no, I'm not. And then an hour later, he kind of just like slumps down in his chair, sits out for another hour. And someone else says, certainly this fellow was one of them, for he's a Galilean. And he, he says he's not. As soon as Peter denies Jesus for the third time, the cock crows, just as Jesus said it would. And then you could, like, if you were filming this, it gives you all the angles that you, that you pick. It says Jesus looked at Peter, you'd see Jesus, the cock would crow, Jesus' head would turn, And then the camera would switch to Peter and his head would turn to see Jesus. They would catch each other's eye. And Peter's heart would just sink. I said I'd never do that. I said I'd go to prison. I said I'd go to death for you, Jesus. And now I've denied you three times before the cock has crowed. 
his heart would just sink right into his stomach. But then what Peter does is something really, really important. Verse 62. Talking about Peter, he went outside and wept bitterly. He goes out and he cries. You can see that he knows that he's done something wrong. He's let Jesus down. Jesus said it would happen. He said it wouldn't. And he was the one that was wrong. He denied his best friend in the whole world three times. I think this is the kind of second betrayal that we see in this passage. First is at the hands of Judas as he hands them over to the religious leaders. And here it's Peter. He says about his best friend who's done everything for him. I don't know him. He means nothing to me. Now that's what we're seeing in this bit. But this is the thing that amazes me about Jesus. He's in the middle of a nightmare situation. Two of his closest friends betray him. The ten others have run off. And his response is unbelievable. If I were Jesus, and thank God that I'm not, I would have been so cross and hurt that I would have used their poor treatment of me as an excuse for for me to have poor behaviour as well. To be either self-pitying or physically violent or calling people names or belittling them. Or maybe just even sulking. All of those poor sinful responses, any of or all of which I would have had in this situation. Jesus has none of them. Here, Jesus let down by his friends. A really painful thing to happen. And he doesn't sulk. He doesn't get all self-pitying. He doesn't even silently seethe inside. But what he does is he carries on with God's plan. He could have used any of those excuses to say, God, they're not worth it. Look at what they've done to me. But he doesn't. Before the world was even existing, God's plan was set out. This is the plan of rescue and redemption. That's saving people from a fate worse than death and restoring them to a position of innocence and friendship with God. God's plan has always been that Jesus would come into this world as a real human person. He would live a life like like ours, suffering and struggling just like we do, without ever giving in or giving up where we do to sometimes serve our own selfish ends, but living in exactly the way that God the Father wanted him to. In that way, Jesus always pleased God. That ultimately led Jesus to the point of being betrayed by his closest friends. And still Jesus sticks to God's plan of rescue. What happens is, as we'll find out in a bit more detail in the the weeks to come in this series, Jesus is tried, he's sentenced to death, he's crucified, a man who did nothing wrong is punished as a man who is the worst criminal ever. He dies and he's buried. And I'll let you into a secret. Three days later, he rises again. But pretend you haven't heard that. We'll hear that on Easter Sunday. In that Jesus, the perfect man, he takes our position. We're not perfect. We're not even good by our own standards because you know we all feel guilty about doing things that we wish we hadn't done. We don't meet our own standards for goodness, let alone meet God's desired standards for us. Jesus takes on himself all those times that we've rejected God, we've rebelled against him, that we've betrayed him even. 
as he's killed, he's, he dies, taking our punishment for all those things that we've done in the past, that we've done today, and that we will do tomorrow. He takes on himself all of those things, and he dies. Three days later, he's brought back to life by God the Father because he's done enough. He receives new life. And his new life that he receives as he's brought back from the grave is what is available for you and me too if we believe in him and accept uh, who Jesus is by faith. So this is where we started. Hope in the face of betrayal. I don't feel like I quite got back to the title from where we started, but we're going to wrap that together now and with a nice little bow on top, hopefully. And this is also where we're going to end. So we're talking about hope in this whole series. So where is the hope in this passage? I want us to finish with this. So let's try and see if we can hear that as we go through. So I kind of want to come to it from a slightly odd angle. So listen carefully. So where can we find hope in this story of Jesus being betrayed by his closest friends? I think our hope has only one place in this whole story to rest. And our hope can only rest solely in Jesus. Maybe when you saw the title for today's talk, you maybe thought, oh, great, I feel really betrayed by somebody. This will give me a few good Bible points to know how to deal with that. Well, that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at the fact that Jesus is the only place we can place our hope, the only person we can put our hope in for a few reasons. And the first one is, when everything went wrong, when Jesus' best friends betrayed him and let him down, he didn't get sidetracked from his mission. He was never sidetracked from his rescue mission. He never said, that's it. I'm not helping you because you've let me down. And see how you fare without me. Jesus didn't do that at all. If he had, all of us would be, the Bible tells us clearly, if it wasn't for Jesus, we'd all be on a direct road to eternal punishment from God for betraying Jesus. Jesus uh, Judas and Peter weren't and aren't the only people who have ever betrayed Jesus. Ultimately, we all have. We've all chosen to go our own way rather than God's way. When we do that, we betray Jesus. We choose to do what I want to do rather than what God wants to do. Jesus who came to, Jesus came to earth not to give us a massive list of things that we should do, but he came to show us who God is. And it is that that we reject. We kind of say, thank you for all the nice things that you've given us, but I'm going my own way. Even in the face of people being cruel to him and betraying him, Jesus never got sidetracked. He accomplished what he set out to accomplish in the first place. Second thing is, Jesus is now king. Not just at the point of the story, even when he's going through the the thing in the garden, that people are betraying him. He was king then, but he's king today. Even though he's betrayed, he died, he did rise again, and he ascended back into heaven, and he took up his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father as king of the world. And he's the one that the world is all about. Whether I or you Like it or not, this is his world. When we're faithful to Jesus, the world makes that little bit more sense. We can kind of see it partly through his eyes when we trust in him. But even when we aren't faithful to Jesus, he is still king. He was never sidetracked on earth 
by humans failing him and he isn't knocked off his throne in heaven if I'm a bad subject to King Jesus. He is still king whether I act like it or not. So this is why one day Jesus will come again and he'll judge the world because he's the king of it. He'll judge each one of us as to how we've responded to him as king. Uh, Whether we've accepted his position or not. If we have, we'll be with him forever in what the Bible calls the new creation, a perfect and eternal world. Have love and peace without pain and suffering. And if we haven't, we'll spend eternity in punishment and isolation where the Bible calls hell. So Jesus is our hope. Our hope truly is Jesus. The passage gives us a really great comparison. It gives us the comparison of Peter and Judas. And really they're just kind of, we can look at them as two types of people. You know, you're either coming one camp under Peter or under Judas. Both of them betrayed Jesus at the time when he was in the garden. And their response to what they did shows their kind of end results. So Judas betrays Jesus. He feels guilty about it. And the way that Judas deals with that is in the end he goes and he hangs himself. Sometimes we know that, we, that there might be a God out there and, and we haven't done what he wants, but we may still just choose not to do anything about that. That's basically the response of Judas saying, I'm going to have the good things, but I just can't deal with what you want from me. So we can take the option of Judas and take God's good things, but ultimately reject him. Or we can see what Peter does. Peter, who betrays Jesus, and he is then so overcome by his grief that he weeps. But ultimately, Peter goes back to Jesus and asks for forgiveness. Ultimately, Peter is welcomed back into Jesus' arms. Jesus Jesus takes Peter back into his family. He says, Peter, even though you've done this kind of great wrong, it's still going to be on you that I'm going to build the church. I want you to be the the man who the church will follow. So there are these two responses to Jesus. In the face of betrayal, Jesus is never sidetracked and he is still king today. We can either follow the example that Judas gives of rejecting him or follow the example that Peter gives of trusting him. If we hope in Jesus, if we put our faith in Jesus, he will respond to us like he responded to Peter. He'll put his arms around us and he'll welcome us back in and we'll be part of his family from now forever. But if we respond to Jesus like Judas, taking what he can give us and just not caring about him, We'll end up like Judas. We'll end up in a place of destruction and isolation. So I want to challenge you. Where would you come? Where would you put yourself? Would you put yourself more in Judas' side or would you put yourself more in Peter's side? And I would encourage you not to be putting yourself in Judas' side. If you think that's where you are, ask Jesus to forgive you for those things that you've done wrong. Ask Jesus to forgive you for the betrayal that you have done to him. Because there is hope in the face of betrayal and that hope is only found in Jesus because he never got sidetracked from God's mission and he is still king today so put your faith and trust in him and he does all of that he gives us that great hope because he loves us more than anyone else ever could
So let's pray, and then we'll sing again. Father, we want to thank you that even in a really messed up situation like we read about in the Bible, there is still hope, and that hope is still in Jesus. Father, we thank you that nothing ever stopped Jesus um, going about your mission. Father, we thank you that your long-term mission in all of history has been one of uh, rescuing and saving and redeeming a people for yourself. Father, we thank you that we can respond to you in faith because Jesus has done everything that we need to approach you, to be right with you. Jesus' life was perfect where ours isn't, but he's happy to give that to us so that we can be right with you. Father, we thank you for his great sacrifice and his willingness to welcome people like us into your family. Father, I pray that you would help us to respond to Jesus in hope and in faith, knowing that one day we will be with him forever in a perfect good world. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray that by your spirit you would impress this on our hearts and trust in him. Amen.